Section 11 of The Medici, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Avahi in February 2020. The Medici, Volume 1 by G. F. Young. Chapter 5 The Medici Palace before taking our next step in the history of the medici let us look at the house in which they lived and which is inseparably concerned with cosimo its builder for it is a notable one for this is the cradle in which things which now form all the intellectual life of europe were nursed and nourished in their infancy and helped to grow the medici in the course of their history occupied three successive palaces in florence the first that which was occupied by giovanni di bicci connected with their rise the second this in the via larga connected with all their greatest time in history the third that on the south side of the arno the pitti palace connected with their decline and end but it is this second of the three their home during all the time of their greatest achievements which must ever have the chief attraction for those who study their history a world of interest gathers round this palace it is interesting architecturally as the first to be constructed of all the renaissance palaces of florence it is interesting historically from the many important events with which it is associated and lastly it is deeply interesting on account of its connection with learning and art as regards its architectural interest the first thing noticeable about it is its date fourteen thirty and its extraordinary advance in style spaciousness and general arrangements beyond all palaces of like date in france england or germany we look at it when it has been standing four hundred and seventy-five years and yet do not find it jar on us by any appearance of inferiority of style or meanness of proportions thus we are apt to forget that it was built when the battle of agincourt had only been fought fifteen years when the wars of the roses had not yet begun and when henry the sixth was only eight years old but let it be compared with anything of the kind elsewhere of the same date and it will be realized how far in advance this handsome spacious and commodious palace erected by the medici for themselves in fourteen thirty was beyond even king's palaces of that date in england france or germany it is built in three orders of architecture the peculiar style rustica on the ground floor doric on the second story and corinthian on the third the rustica style with its grand roughly hewn stones a style of construction which afterwards became so fashionable was first employed in the building of this palace we are told that michelozzo adopted it because it united an appearance of solidity and strength with the light and shadow so essential to beauty under the glare of an italian sun it was exceedingly expensive and was the principal cause of the new palace being spoken of as too grand for an ordinary citizen the corner of the ground floor towards the via de gori was originally an open loggia 
the windows of the upper stories are divided by elegant little columns with carved above them cosimo's own special device of the three feathers and the arms of the medici the palle or balls on the corner of the palace is the celebrated fanale one of the most perfect specimens of the well-known iron lamps made by niccolo capara and only permitted on the palaces of the most distinguished citizens the solid character of the ground floor is in accordance with the requirements of the time in that age the home of an important family had to be a fortress no less than a palace and the ground floor of a florentine palace was built as solidly as the bastille all decoration being reserved for the upper floors the entrance door of such palaces led through an arched vestibule into an open cortile or courtyard round which the four sides of the palace were built with a fine marble staircase leading up from the cortile to the handsome rooms on the first floor this palace was deliberately intended by cosimo to be a model of renaissance architecture it of course far surpassed when built any of the other palaces at that time in florence or in italy and it is remarkable that though it was the first of the kind and though it was succeeded by numerous others many of them of such excellence it still remains unsurpassed by any of them the worthy leader of all the great palaces of florence professor bannister fletcher in his history of architecture takes this palace as the best example of renaissance architecture as applied to palaces while he also notes that it gives us both the first and the finest example of two things in particular the solid rustica masonry and the bold and massive cornice eight feet in height which crowns the structure and considerably aids its impressive effect interesting however as this palace is architecturally it is still more so as the centre of so much history from the middle of the fifteenth to the middle of the sixteenth century this was the home of the medici during a hundred years from the time of cosimo pater patrie until in fifteen thirty nine cosimo the first the first grand duke moved to the palazzo vecchio preparatory to occupying the new and larger palace which he constructed on the other side of the arno it was thus their home throughout all their greatest time here have been entertained emperors popes kings princes and most of the distinguished men of that period here cosimo pater patrie passed his strenuous years so full of varied labours here lorenzo the magnificent gathered round him his brilliant intellectual coterie here the future pope leo x was brought up here his cousin afterwards pope clement the seventh devised his deep-laid schemes for the advancement of the family here catherine de medici was born and lived as a girl and here nearly all the most prominent events in florence's history during her most important period have taken place not many palaces in europe have given hospitality to so many notable persons as have passed through the entrance doorway of this home of the medici migliore says that owing to the number and high rank of those entertained there the medici palace was called the hotel of the princes of the whole world 
it is now known as the ricardi palace having been long subsequently bought from the state by that family but now that it has again passed into the possession of the state it might well be called by its own name though now so little thought of it is one of the most important buildings in florence and should have that importance duly marked greater still however is the interest attaching to this palace from the point of view of learning and art the inscription which it still bears designates it as the nurse of all learning and justly so for it was here that the ancient learning of greece and rome was called back to life and it was from hence that the new learning went forth to change the face of europe entering by the central doorway and passing through the arched vestibule one finds oneself in the cortile this court was once adorned with various celebrated statues among them donatello's bronze statue of david which worked so important an effect in the world of art while we still see over the arches his medallions and here all round under the arcades are classical busts inscriptions and sarcophagi recalling the time when the enthusiasm for the ancient learning burned so strongly here that time when marsilio ficino the great scholar whom cosimo treated almost as a son kept a lamp burning before the bust of plato as before an altar here also art was reverenced and encouraged to a scarcely less degree than learning the number of objects of art which the medici collected round them in this palace was extraordinary a glimpse of it is given us in the remark made by the duke of milan in fourteen seventy one that he had not seen in all italy so many objects of art as he saw in this palace yet this was before lorenzo the magnificent added thereto all the immense collection made by him during his twenty-three years rule by which he at least doubled all that had been collected by his father and grandfather the whole of this great accumulation of art treasures was lost when the palace was sacked by the mob in fourteen ninety four while the same plundering of all the art treasures collected in the meantime happened again in fifteen twenty seven it shows therefore what profuse art collectors the medici were when we find that though all was thus twice over swept away the galleries and museums of florence still contain paintings statues bronzes gems and other objects of art almost all of them collected by the medici sufficient to surpass any other collection of such things in europe this passion for collecting objects of art on the most lavish scale was permanent in this family through all changes and from their rise right down to their end no differences of character seemed to make any difference in this and whether they were public-minded statesmen like cosimo patapatrie or luxurious popes like leo x or iron-handed tyrants like cosimo i or incapable occupiers of a tottering throne like the last two grand dukes there is not one of them in the whole three hundred and forty-three years of their course who does not show this strong family characteristic in the now deserted court of the palace of the medici there is to be seen a long latin inscription which runs as follows 
after calling on the traveller to pause and note that this was once the celebrated house of the Medici, Mediceas Olim Aedes, and that here a long list of emperors, kings, popes, and other exalted personages have been entertained, it continues thus. Traveller. Once the house of the Medici, in which not alone so many great men, but knowledge herself had her home. The house which was the nurse of all learning, which here revived again. Renowned also for its cultured magnificence, a treasury of antiquity and the arts. The homes of departed glory are few over which a prouder epitaph could be placed. And it is in this connection that we may trace the origin of that unique appreciation of art which the Medici as a family possessed, that second sphere in which they were as notable, though in a different way, as they were in regard to learning for they give us an example on the wide scale of the connection between those two things. All who feel the spirit of art know that technical excellence is not the chief thing, that there must also be the expression of some thought, some creation of the artist's brain. We see that pictures or statues which lack this, and rely solely on excellence of technique, though they may gain a certain degree of eminence, never obtain the highest and most lasting fame. Hence it is that it has been said of technical criticism that it can only show us the things that are of minor consequence. If, then, the real value of a picture lies in the thoughts that it expresses, it is evident that the more knowledge we possess, the more likely we are to be able to read those thoughts and so to appreciate the picture. And this, true everywhere, is doubly so in the case of the great masters of the classic age of painting, who were many-sided men, learned in many subjects. Ruskin, after long study of an important fresco picture by one of these masters, remarked that he stood amazed at the mass of varied knowledge, in history, science, theology, and other subjects, displayed by the artist, and that, as he realized how much it surpassed his own knowledge on the subjects concerned, and marked that this mass of knowledge on the part of the artist was joined also to perfect drawing and coloring, he felt that he stood indeed in the presence of a master. Every picture, in fact, except those belonging to the time of art's decadence, has something to say. Lord Lindsay calls the efforts of the earliest masters the burning messages of prophecy uttered by the stammering lips of infants. And whether the execution be crude or not, the true pleasure in art lies in looking through and beyond it, and deciphering that burning message, if such be there. Art, therefore, is a universal language, and one in which the artist opens to us a world of high and deep thoughts, of which we had before no conception. Thus, learning and art go hand in hand. For without learning, art has nothing to say. And art that has nothing to say will never long hold the attention of mankind. As, then, we stand in the deserted court of the palace which was the nurse of all learning, we can understand how natural it was that the learning of the Medici should lead them to become the greatest patrons of art that the world has ever seen. 
End of section 11.